there's no children's choir practice this Sunday, so if you're a child who usually goes to that, you can uh, just stay here and um, endure. Would the rest of you open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 65. If you're using one of those pew Bibles in the pew rack in front of you, you can find this on page 742. Say page 742. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 65. As we continue our study in the book of Isaiah, if this is your first Sunday here, we'd like to welcome you. Uh, Our church has been studying through Isaiah since, I think, last January. So we're almost finished. We have, we're, gonna, we're almost finished with the book. We have two more Sundays and then we're, uh, Isaiah's in the can and, and we'll uh, move on to whatever's next. Isaiah 65 and we're going to study verses 17 to 19 this morning. One of the great passages of hope in the book of Isaiah says, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight, and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. So have you seen this... uh, this television show, uh, Extreme Makeover Home Edition. Yeah, yeah, I think it's sort of a popular show. It's one of these reality, yet, you know, another reality TV show. And it's, it's a makeover show. And as the title suggests, uh, they take some home that's really messed up and they make the whole thing over. And typically they take some hard luck story like, you know, eight children who lost their parents, but they're living in the house, and the house is beat up, and they can't really live there. Or, you know, a young family accidentally has triplets or whatever, and they have this small little bungalow, and they can't fit their family there, and they can't move somewhere else. It's some really sad story. And then what happens is they kick the family out for a week and send them wherever, and uh, the SWAT team of designers and builders and landscape architects and they just sort of descend on the house like ants, and literally a couple hundred people, and they, you know, renovate the place and fix it up and re-landscape it and, you know, add additions onto it so that when these people come back from, you know, a week away, this, the house is totally renewed, and you couldn't even tell it was the same house. And then, of course, the, you know, the final five minutes of every one of these makeover shows is the unveiling. You know, that's the, the, the most important part. And, you know, they bring the people back and then they're like, oh, I can't believe this. And, and if you want, the thing about these shows is they really do have a, a gravity to them. You get sucked right in. And, and then, you know, by the end of it, you know, you're like all teary-eyed. And you're like, I mean, I hear people get teary-eyed. Um, and you're like, oh, God, it's so beautiful. And, you know, what is it with the makeover show? You have to admit, even if you don't watch makeover shows, if you start watching one, you're, you're just, you get sucked into it. Whether it's the home makeover show, or you know, the clothing one, what not to wear, uh, or there's the, uh, the, the body one, it's called the swan. They take someone who's really physically just unattractive, and they do all kinds of like radical, I don't know, it's almost painful to watch, you know, dental surgery and uh, plastic surgery, and then out the other side is this beautiful model kind of person that they make. 
MTV has a car makeover show. It's called, well, let's not go there. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there's all these makeover shows. And I sort of feel like, well, what is it with the makeover show that, we, uh, uh, that we're so attracted to? And, and I guess, I don't know, I guess it's, it's the hope. You know, they take some beat-up, trashed thing or bad-looking thing, and then they... And then on the other side comes this beautiful thing. And we can all kind of relate to that because we all look at ourselves as kind of the beat-up thing and things about ourselves and our lives that we're like, ugh. And then we wonder, you know, wouldn't it be great to be able to be over here? And we love getting caught up in the joy of these people uh, celebrating something that's been transformed in their lives. You know, this world that we live in needs an extreme makeover, big time. It's a beautiful world. Today, this morning, it's gorgeous. And so there's still beauty in what God made, but man, it's been warped, it's been twisted. It's not the way God meant it to be. And you know, I don't care what you believe. You know, maybe you're not a Christian or whatever, but you know, all world religions and all philosophical systems that I know of, except maybe nihilism, admit that, that there's something wrong with the world. And what that thing is differs upon various religions and philosophies. But there seems to be a consensus that this ain't it. This is not what was intended. There's something wrong. And we've got to figure out what it is and how to fix it. This world needs an extreme makeover. I mean, you know, just like this week in the news, you pick the top stories. That poor little girl down in Florida who got abducted and, and killed. And then there's Red Lake High School this week, sort of Columbine, the sequel, or the sequel, the sequel, as there seems to be more of these things. And then, of course, Terry Schiavo. I know you thought you were going to come in someplace and not have to hear about this yet again, but you know, I mean, that whole thing is messed up. And, and I don't care what side you come down on that whole issue. It's complex. We, we look at it and we go, this thing is broken. This is so sad. And you know, that's just little tiny snapshots of the world in which we live. Whether you go look at the highest levels of international politics and government, or local government, school systems, our families... It's broken. It's sinful. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And if we're really honest, if I'm really honest, I, I can take it all the way down to the personal level and look at my own heart and say, you know, I'm not the way I'm supposed to be. Not only is this world a sinful and broken world, but I am a sinful and broken person. The reason that society is messed up is because we all individually are broken and twisted from the way God originally intended us. So that's why I get so much hope out of this passage today. What a huge passage this is. Isaiah 65, 17 to 19. This could be one of the biggest promises in the whole Bible that God has given to us. We could call these verses Extreme Makeover Cosmic Edition. This is God's promise to totally renovate the cosmos, everything. This is God's promise to take this broken, twisted, uh, messed up, sinful world in which we live and to make a new heavens and the new earth that will be marked by righteousness instead of sin, by peace instead of war, by gentleness instead of violence, by truth, by justice. I mean, all the things that we know should be here but aren't. God says, I'm going to make it. A new heavens and the new earth. Look at verse 17. Behold... I will create new heavens and a new earth. That's another way of saying total cosmic makeover. 
this is kind of a Hebrew figure of speech. It's called a merism. And a merism is, in Hebrew is when they take two opposites, put them together, and it's a way of expressing totality. So saying heavens and earth is another way of saying I'm going to do everything over. It's going to be a total remake. I'm going to make a new creation, a new cosmic order, a new universe. Now we know that God created the first heavens and the first earth. In fact, that's the very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when God first made it, it was good. You know, you look at uh, the story in the book of Genesis and God makes something and he says, it is good. And he makes something else, he says, it is good. And then he finishes the whole thing and he goes, it is very good. You know, what God made was good. He, he didn't make it broken. But then we came into the world and rather than loving God and honoring God as free agents with free moral will, we, we turned away from God and we said, no thanks. You know, we'll, we'll try the God thing ourselves. And, you know, we'll let you know if we need some help. But I think we can do this. And we can't do it. We, we are the creation. We're not the creator. And so sin has come into the world through us. And, and all of the parts of sin that we see in the world is just everywhere now. War, you know, violence, poverty, oppression, abuse, injustice, depression, divorce, you know, whatever. And ultimately, the final um, end consummation of, of sin is death. Death is kind of the final period at the end of the sin sentence. It's the, the final climactic manifestation of turning away from God. Because God is, is life. Life is in God. He has life. And if I'm in fellowship with God, then I'm alive. And God's original plan for the human race was to live in fellowship with Him. There wasn't supposed to be death. Death is unnatural. You know, when someone dies and you have that sick feeling... That's normal to feel that way because it's not the way it was supposed to be. Death is not a natural process. I mean, we look at it as natural today because everything dies, but it's not the way it was originally designed. Death has come as a consequence of sin. And so when I turn my back on God and say, no thanks God, I'm going to do it my way, live my way, create my own morality, create my own whatever, then what I'm doing is I'm walking away from life. And the logical place you go is, is death. So we live in this broken world with with sickness and ultimately death. But God says, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. In fact, this is how amazing it will be. Look at the next line. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Could you imagine going to a place so beautiful, so stunning, so enthralling, that you couldn't even remember this life? Because it just, you just forget about it. It's like, uh, you know, when I go on vacation with my family down to Florida in the winter, we like to go down, especially, you know, the best time to go to Florida, if you live in Massachusetts, is like February, early March. You know, when you're just about ready to totally despair up here, because it's been so cold for so long. And so so you bundle up, and you get on the plane, and, you know, you step off the plane in Florida, and instantly you're hit by this warm, humid air, and you start... You know, stripping off everything that you can do within public decency just to, you know, to, to, to get cool because it's so warm. And your dry skin, you know, your knuckles and things have been all dried and cracking all winter. It's like that, that wet air just soaks into your skin and you just feel yourself coming back to life. And then you look around and there's color. It's like green, blue, sand, you know. Flowers are blooming and you've left behind the white and the gray and then all the variations of white and gray that were here. 
And, it, and it's so amazing how quickly the transformation happens because the second, within minutes you step off this plane, you have totally forgotten about the winter in Massachusetts. I mean, the only time I think about it when I'm in Florida is if I happen to see the Weather Channel and I see there's like a big nor'easter up here and I'm like, ha, ha, you know. That's the only time. Otherwise, you just, you forget it. You don't even think of it. It doesn't even come to mind because, you know, you're in Florida on the beach. Could you imagine a new creation so fantastic that none of us could really remember what the Holocaust was? You'd be like, the Holo what? That was something, I don't know, whatever, it doesn't matter. Could you imagine something that great? Something so amazing that none of us could even remember what 9-11 was? 9-11-12, what was that? I don't know. Well, whatever, it doesn't matter. We're here, we're here. Could you imagine a place, a, a world so wonderful, a new heavens and new earth, that, that an abused person who had been physically abused for years wouldn't be able to even remember the face of their abuser? Could you imagine a world where God recreates everything, where even those who are sick and who have been disabled their whole lives are renewed as, as people are raised from the dead and we, we come into this new immortal life and the disabled person can't remember what it was like to be in a wheelchair? That's what God is promising here. You know, look at it. The former things, everything associated with this broken world, will not even be remembered. It won't even come to mind. I won't even remember what those things were. In fact, just the opposite, verse 18. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I would create. Forever and ever. You know, it's like that moment in the makeover show where they unveil the made-over whatever it is. It, you know, that's the best part. And everyone's rejoicing and people are hugging and tears are flowing. And everyone's like, I can't believe it. You know, and they're all just in a big glum hugging each other and they're so excited. But then it goes away. Because then you go to the next show and, you know, it's, I don't know, an action movie. People are killing each other. You know, whatever. You're just on to the next show. And even for those people in real life, I mean, at some point, the new house isn't going to cause them to rejoice every day. I mean, at some point, it's just going to be home. And, you know, maybe if they think about it, they'll be like, oh, yeah, I'm really thankful for this house. But then you just get on with your life. I mean, you don't live in this state of rejoicing all the time. But, but this new world that God's going to make is so amazing that, you know, that moment of unveiling will never end forever and ever. Like 10,000 years hence from being in the new heavens and the new earth, we're still going to be like, I can't believe it! <laughs> you know? and, and a million years hence, we'll still be like, oh, I can't believe it, this is great! And, and we'll be in God's presence. There, there's no end. It's rejoicing forever. We'll, we'll never get to the bottom of the freshness and excitement of what God has in store because He's going to be there. And God is eternal. He has no limit. He don't get to the bottom of God. It's just more and more forever and ever. That's the promise. But not only will God create the new heavens and new earth, but fortunately, He'll also recreate me, His child. God promises to recreate His people as well as, as their environment. Uh, look at verse um, 18. He says, I will create Jerusalem to be a joy. And he's not talking about the physical city. He's not talking about a public works project of putting new buildings in Jerusalem. Jerusalem here is, is, a, is a word for his people. It's being used to, to represent the people of God. I will create Jerusalem to be a delight. Here we go. And its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. The people of God will be renewed. 
Which is good because if God really wants to renew the universe and get rid of the sin problem, then he has to go to the source, which is me. Because if God just takes us and puts us in this new environment, we'll just wreck that one too. <laughs> he can put us anywhere, we'll just keep wrecking it. Until he like, gets in and fixes this, it's not going to be fixed. We're the source of the problem. It all went wrong with us, and so he's got to ultimately come in and change us from the inside out. He's got to renew my heart. He's got to make me a new creation. And so part of God's promise is that he's going to renew his people and make us new, change our hearts, so that not just that the world will be righteous and holy and pure, but he's going to make me righteous and holy and pure. And as a result, verse 19, the sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. No more sobbing, no more sorrow, no more death, no more cause of crying and weeping and sorrow. It'll be joy in God's new creation. Well, pastor, that's interesting. That's, that's cool. I mean, it sounds nice. I mean, don't get me wrong, but, you know, how do I know? Yeah, I mean, you painted a great picture here. You told some stories. We sang some songs. But, you know, I mean, really, I mean, how do we know? This is great, and don't get me wrong, Pastor, I hope you're right. Boy, wouldn't it be great if you were right? Because that would be awesome. But, you know, it's, not just, it's words on paper. I mean, how can, do we have any evidence? You know, what is it that gives us hope that this isn't just some kind of, like, religious opiate? This is some kind of uh, utopianism like every other utopianism. I mean, how, how can we know that God's going to do this? Besides, you know, if, believing that it says it in the Bible. I mean, how, how, how do we have confidence and the answer is, we know that God is going to recreate the heavens and the earth. We know there will be a new creation because it's already started. It already has been kicked off. It's underway around us. Is it here fully? No, of course not. <laughs> Obviously, watch the news. It's not here fully yet. But it's already been inaugurated. It's in motion. Like the light before the dawn, before the sun comes over the hill, you see this pre-dawn light. The pre-dawn light is already shining. Because you see, the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation, started with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When Jesus rose from the dead, it wasn't just some isolated incident. It was the beginning of of the new heavens and the new earth. In fact, Jesus' physical resurrected body that came out of the tomb was the first morsel, the first crumb of the new heavens and the new earth. It, it, it was already started in Him. He was the beginning of it. I know this is maybe a different way of thinking about the resurrection. Typically, when we think about the resurrection, we talk about themes like the end of death and God's power, and all that's true. I'm not denying any of that. But you know, the resurrection is this kind of multifaceted gem and, and as you turn it and look at it from different angles you see different aspects of its beauty and, and here's another way of looking at the resurrection it was also the beginning of the new creation that Jesus himself was the start of this final plan is it completed yet? no when he comes back it will be completed but it's already started we have the first fruits of the new heavens and the new earth in Jesus uh, flip over with me to the New Testament I want to look at another passage 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 1139. 1139. I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. Look at verse 20. It says, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And fallen asleep here, as you can tell, is a euphemism for death. Uh, Christ is the first fruits of those who are being raised from the dead. And then you see that phrase, first fruits, is repeated down in verse 23. But each in his own turn. Christ, the first fruits, is raised. Then when he comes, in other words, his second coming, those who belong to him. So Christ isn't, his resurrection isn't just an isolated event. It's organically connected to our resurrection. The, the final new heavens and the new earth, part of which is the resurrection from the dead, the end of death, eternal life, that great thing that we're reading about and hoping for has already begun in Christ because he's the first fruits. I mean, you understand the concept of first fruits. Uh, you know, during harvest time, the, you know, in an orchard or a, a vineyard, there's going to be some little bunch of grapes somewhere that's the first grapes to ripen. And we don't know exactly where they are, but they're somewhere in the orchard, and, and that's the first ones. And it, they signal that the whole harvest is about to really happen. Uh, my father-in-law is a cranberry grower. He owns bogs down in Carver, and, uh, and uh, he, he grows different types of cranberries, and they ripen at different times. And there's different varieties. There's the Ben Lear cranberries, there's Howe berries, there's early blacks. And, and each different type of cranberry ripens at different times. The first ones to ripen are the Ben Lears. So somewhere in September or late August or whenever they start ripening, out on the bog, on the Ben Lear bog, there's some cranberry that's like the first cranberry to go boop, whatever it is that signifies ripened. I don't know where it is, who knows, you probably never see it, but somewhere out there there's this one cranberry and it's the first fruit, it's the beginning, and it's tied to all the rest because it signals that the harvest is now about to happen. And that's what Christ is. His resurrection from the dead is the first fruits of our resurrection and thus of this whole new created order. Jesus is the beginning of it. He's the start. It's not here in totality yet, but it's already begun. And that's why the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, physically, literally, is a fundamental Christian doctrine. That's why you get rid of the resurrection... And you don't have Christianity anymore. You have something else. I mean, this is at the very core, essential beliefs of what Christianity has always proclaimed. A resurrected Christ. Because without it, then the whole thing just falls apart. You know, we don't have any hope anymore. It's like what Paul says in verse uh, 17. Go back a verse or two. Go back to verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If there isn't a risen Christ, then, you know, he really didn't die for our sins. Because the sin leads to death. So if Jesus died for my sins and he paid for it, then his victory over death proves that my sins were really paid for. It's all connected together. And if he really wasn't raised, then he really didn't die for my sins. And the fundamental problem with the world isn't solved. And so there really isn't a hope of a new heavens and a new earth. It all hangs together. And if you get rid of the resurrection, you get rid of the hope. Or as he says in verse 18, those who have fallen asleep then, those who have died in Christ, dead Christians, are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. The resurrection is fundamental. Get rid of the resurrection and you lose Christianity altogether. Because the basic proclamation of 
of Christianity, of Jesus, is Jesus crucified, buried, raised. That's our hope, is that we have a Savior who came into this world, walked in this world, took on flesh, and then took our sins upon himself, but crucified, buried, dead. He took the full punishment of sin, and then he rose again from the dead. He, he's beginning the new thing. And if he didn't do that, then it isn't happening, and it's not going to happen, and we don't really have any hope. You know, Jesus didn't come and proclaim, you know, be good, be nice. You get rid of the resurrection, that's all you're kind of left with, is sort of be nice. You find that you get rid of the resurrection and Christianity devolves into just, you know, try, try harder. Follow your heart. You know, be good, do your best, take care of yourself. You know, that's all you're left with. <laughs> I don't need that. I know I'm supposed to be good. The problem is, I'm not. And I've tried, and it didn't work. And I keep trying. And I try my best to be good, and to be tolerant, and to be nice. But I look within my heart, and there's this latent selfishness, and, and pride, and self-righteousness, and prejudice, and um, you know, lust, and greed, and materialism. It's just like lurking in there. And I can't fully overcome it. So I don't need someone telling me to be good. I need a Savior who can make me good. I need a Savior. I need someone who took my sins, was buried, took, paid the full penalty for them, and rose again. And, and now in Him I have hope. So without the resurrection, you don't, you don't have anything. You just have empty moralism. The apostles did not come proclaiming, be good. They came proclaiming, He is risen. The apostles were not martyred and tortured for the proclamation of be nice. They were tortured and imprisoned and martyred because they would unflinchingly stand up and say, He's risen! We've touched Him! We saw Him! That's why all these different guys suffered horrible martyrdoms because of what they saw. Because He was really raised. And so if Christ was raised then I have hope that God really is going to do this new heavens and this new earth. And if He wasn't raised, then my hope is in vain. It, it all hinges on that, if Christ was raised. And then, as I believe in Christ, I enter into this new creation. That's another manifestation of it. In fact, uh, turn over a page. Maybe you've seen this verse before. It's to 2 Corinthians. It's the next book, right after 1 Corinthians. Just over a page. And look at chapter 5. Verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5.17 This verse is great. Some of you have memorized it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. In literally in Greek it says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. That's what it says in Greek. It doesn't say he is, so you kind of have to supply the verb. So you could translate it, he is the new creation. You could translate it, there is the new creation. You could translate it, behold, a new creation. But, but the point is that what Paul is talking about is that when a person believes in Jesus, we enter into the new creation. We, we become part of the new order. That something new happens within us when you come to Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the new creation, so if I'm in Him and I believe in Him, then that means I've entered into the new creation, and, and there's this transformation in my life. And that's one of the joys I have as a pastor, is watching individual people 
become part of the new creation. It's so fun to see people enter into it and to see it alive. So I not only have Jesus to give me hope of the new creation, but I see Jesus' life in other people. And I'm like, wow, I'm seeing the new creation. Well, the first fruits anyway, the first fruits. I'm seeing it, like there it is, right before my eyes. You know, there's one guy, those of you who are members of our church have, have uh, met this guy, you know him, but in case you haven't, I just, uh, if this is your first time here, let me just tell you about this guy in our church. One example, his name was uh, Sean, and uh, he was a guy who used to come to our church, and when he first came to our church, he was, uh, wasn't a Christian, but he was kind of seeking, and, and he had, you know, the ideal worldly life. He was a beer salesman, on the fast track, doing very well. You know, the kind of life that the most people would be like, oh, you're a beer salesman? That's a great job, you know. <laughs> you get free beer and, oh, what do you do for work? You go to set up big parties and invite people to parties? Wow, I wish I had your job. And, you know, and he was doing very well. He was climbing the corporate ladder and, and uh, really successful. But, you know, something was missing. And then his, uh, his brother dragged him to church after many, many years of trying. And finally he came and God just spoke to his heart. And I'll, I'll never forget the Sunday. It was, I think it was November 9th, uh, 1997, when this guy finally gave his life to Christ, where, where God did the big unveiling and showed him what he was missing. And, and I remember this guy came, he was a big athletic guy. He comes like, charging up after the service. I mean, you couldn't have stood in his way. He would have knocked you over. I mean, he wanted to pray. He wanted Jesus in his life. Just tears were running down his face. And, and he just knew that he needed Christ and, and he gave his life to Jesus, and the new creation was happening. And then, and then it started, and, and so he goes back to work, and he's like, ooh. <laughs> you know, this, uh, this job used to be like, I have the best job in the world. Now it's like, ooh, this isn't gross. I, you know, people partying and getting inebriated and, you know, hooking up and all this stuff. I mean, this, this is my job? Oh, I don't like this. And suddenly his desires had changed. He, he said, you know, Jeremy, I'm not perfect now, but, but when I sin, the difference is I really feel bad about it now. I used to just do things, and it didn't bother me at all. And then I became a Christian, and now it bothers me like crazy. There's this new thing within him that he couldn't control. And eventually he quit that job, and he became one of our missionaries that we support. It's, it's really cool. And he married a beautiful woman, and God just sort of took off with his life. I'm not saying that if you become a Christian, you become a missionary, although you might. But I'm just saying that, that God changes your life. It's a new creation. It's what Jesus called being born again. That's what it means to be born again. You know, you hear that phrase and everyone kind of rolls their eyes like born again Christians, a bunch of religious nuts. I mean, it, that's not what it means. Being born again just means that God changes your life and makes you a new creation. Not that we're there yet, though, right? Because this is still just the first fruits. Even these wonderful moments in our lives where we draw close to Jesus. Even the most exalted moments of praise when we stand here in the sanctuary and we can almost feel God smiling on us. Even in the most intimate moments of prayer when I'm on my knees and it feels like Christ has His hand upon my back as I pray. Even in those most intimate moments, it's just the first fruits. It's just the pre-dawn light. You haven't seen anything yet. It's just the, it's just the smell coming out of the kitchen. You wouldn't believe what God's baking. It's just the beginning. It's the first fruits. And so as a Christian, even with all the good things God's doing in my life, I still yearn intensely for the new heavens and the new earth. I, I yearn for the new thing that's coming. I'm dying to receive it. It's, it's going to be great. I can't wait to leave this world. I can't wait for Christ to come back because I just keep smelling and it smells so good. 
And I look what this world has to feed me, and I'm like, tag me. I want what God has to feed me. I want His provision. And, and, and so we yearn as Christians because we realize we've just had the first fruits. It was funny, this, this year I was uh, out uh, in Indianapolis where Sean lives, and he and I hooked up for lunch, and how you doing? And in our whole conversation, or a big part of our conversation at lunch was about how frustrated we are with our immaturity in Christ. Just how frustrated we are with our Christian life. It's like, man, I, I think I should be so much further along with Jesus and I have so much further to go. I wish God would really work in my life. And you know, you'd think like the pastor and the missionary you know, would be having conversations about how great they are and how far advanced they are. But that's not how it is when you're a Christian. As a Christian, you, you've tasted the new, but you realize we're still in the old. Being a Christian is like having jet lag all the time. You know, jet lag, your body's one place, but your inside clock is another place. And that's how I feel as a Christian. I'm here, I'm in this world, I've got to live in this world, I've got to do this thing. But there's this thing in me that is like urging, surging, longing for the new life that God is going to bring. And so I straddle the ages as a Christian. I'm caught in between. I'm part of the old, but the new is already welling up within us. And someday the new will come. And here's a picture of it. One more verse. Will you humor me again? Turn to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. The book of Revelation. And at the very end of Revelation, so just very back of your Bible, I don't even know what page it is. It's way at the back. Chapter 21 of Revelation. Now, as you read these first five verses of chapter 21, as I read them, I want you to listen for Isaiah 65. 17 to 19. This is Revelation 21, 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. That's a picture of the the people of God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, I am making... Everything new. Making everything new. Sometimes, a couple times, I've been asked this question talking about what it's like to be a pastor and the challenges of being a minister. And and sometimes people will say, well, you know, you have to do funerals, right? Isn't that tough? I mean, that that would seem like a really hard part of being a minister is having to do funerals for people. And... You know, the answer is, funerals are pretty easy when the person's a Christian. It's the easiest thing in the world. I mean, it's sad. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to be calloused and, you know, cavalier about it. It, It's sad. The people who are left behind are sad. But it's it's happy, you know. It's great doing funerals for Christians. Like the Puritans used to say, a believer's last day is his best day. You know, like, what's sad about doing a funeral for a Christian? It's like going to the airport with someone and handing them a one-way ticket to Florida. <laughs> see ya. <laughs> you know, and can't wait to get my ticket. I'll see you there. I mean, that's what a funeral is for a Christian. 
Someday we all have to take that flight. We all have to take that flight someday because we are still part of this world. It's broken. There is death. But the thing is, there's, there's two planes. And one's going one place that we've been talking about and one's going the other place that we didn't talk about, but I'll just tell you it's the, everything that's opposite of the other place. And the ticket to get on the right plane is a cross. It's Jesus. And if you don't have Christ, you can't get on that plane. He is who takes us there. He is the new heavens and the new earth. And so if you want to be a part of it, you have to enter into it now in Christ. And so my prayer is that, that you would see the beauty of Jesus. And if you haven't given your life to Jesus, if you haven't put your faith in Him, is that you would do that. That you would come to Christ and say, Jesus, I'm not satisfied with being a church attender. I, you know, that's not what it's about. It's about knowing you, Christ. Jesus, I need a Savior. Save me, Christ. Save me from my sins. Let me taste this new creation. I want it. I don't even know what it is. Sometimes I'm not even sure if I believe in it. But if it's real, I want it. I want it. Come do it in my life. Change me and save me. And then buckle up. Because you're going for a ride. It's great. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we worship You. We glorify You. We give You the the praise and the adoration because You, Jesus Christ, are risen. We praise You because You have defeated death. You have defeated sin. We praise You, Jesus, because right now You are alive. You are more alive than we are. You are at the Father's right hand and through Your Holy Spirit You are here in our presence now. And Jesus, we're here this morning to give you all the praise.